The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah 30. We'll be looking at a text for a little bit there this evening. We'll get there in a moment. We're not going to be here from the very start, but go ahead and turn to Isaiah 30 so that when we do get there, we'll be ready for that. For God's relationship with the Israelites, it's abundantly clear in history, uh, as we read the Old Testament, that God made sure they had confidence in His protection. He promised them that they would always have His protection. And as most promises of God are conditional, so is this one. He promised them He'd always be there to protect them and provide for them to fight off any enemy, no matter how great or small. But they needed to be faithful to Him. They needed to trust in Him by following His ways and keeping His commandments and His statutes and His ordinances throughout the whole time that they were His people. And He would protect them in return. He would be their God and they would be His people. And part of that faithfulness that He required of them for Him to protect them was a trust that He could protect them. And one of the greatest failings of Israelite history is when they reached the promised land and sent those spies in and they did not have the confidence that God would be able to deliver them from the Canaanites. And so they were made to wander in the wilderness and die and the second generation saw the land. God always promised His nation He would protect them, but they had to remain faithful to Him. In Leviticus 25, 18, He speaks about how if they observe His statutes and judgments and perform them, they will dwell in the land safely. In Leviticus 26 and verse 7, he says, You will chase your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. So even number-wise, it didn't matter how great the enemy was and how small Israel was before them. If they trusted in God, he would provide for them in that regard. In a familiar text of Deuteronomy chapter 6, when the Shema is mentioned, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. He mentions the fact that they had been given these commands to observe and such, and he says, Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Your days would be prolonged, and you would multiply greatly in the promised land, in spite of the enemies that would they, they would face if they trusted in the Lord. In Deuteronomy 12 and verse 10, uh, Moses noted there but God's promise that they would dwell in that land and have rest from their enemies if they were faithful to God. In Deuteronomy 28 and verse 7, it says, The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Well, we remember the nation and we remember the history And we remember that they stopped trusting in God and they turned to idols and they turned to the pagan people around them and started adjusting to their ways, conforming to the world, if you will, instead of being transformed by the will of God. And there came a point where the kingdom, remember, was divided and there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel, immediately upon the division of the kingdom, started serving idols and set up places in Dan and Bethel as a matter of convenience and serving God. And they were completely evil throughout. 
and all their kings we read about were evil kings. And eventually, God was fed up with this enough where He sent the Assyrian Empire down throughout Israel and the Assyrians besieged and took Samaria and they laid the final blow to the Israelite nation and they were carried into captivity. And a few years after that, the king Sennacherib of Assyria then turned his eyes to Judah, the southern part of the divided kingdom, and set his eyes on them to take them into his own possession and conquer them. Now, Israel was taken into captivity for more than just one reason, but one of the things that they failed in is they put their trust in an alliance with a pagan nation instead of with God. In 2 Kings 17 and verse 4, it said, The king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hoshea, that is the king of Israel, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison, and eventually that led to their captivity. They did not trust in God. They trusted in ultimately Egypt in that text. And the southern nation of Judah didn't learn from the northern nation of Israel. Israel saw hard times and put their trust in Egypt and Egypt failed them utterly. And then you have Judah make the same mistake. And Isaiah prophesies about how this wouldn't work for them in Isaiah 30. Notice the first seven verses of Isaiah 30. Isaiah writes, as the Lord says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Above all things that they've done, now they're showing they trust in these people rather than God, who walk down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. For his princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be a help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. And so here's people who are already rebellious and adding on to their sin. They trust in Egypt instead of God. And he speaks in verse 3 of the strength of Pharaoh. They saw a strength in Pharaoh. They saw a strength in Egypt. In the next chapter of Isaiah 31 and verse 1, it gives us kind of a reason for that as it speaks of the same context and matter. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because there are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. And so as is something we all often struggle with, they saw the pomp and glory of a nation with a great military and thought to trust in that instead of what was spiritual. They saw something physical and placed their trust in the physical instead of knowing that the God who is spirit is far more powerful. And so Isaiah explains the strength of Pharaoh is going to be your shame. You're going to be extremely and utterly disappointed by Egypt. They're not going to be able to help you not one bit. He adds to that in verses 6 and 7 the acts and decisions made by Judah, the burden against the beasts of the south through a land of trouble and anguish from which come the lioness and lion, the viper and fiery flying serpent that will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore, I have called her Rahab him Shebeth. 
And so it shows the folly in this. They, they not only turned to them for protection, but they went through the dangerous desert with all of these dangerous creatures. They put themselves in harm's way. They carried riches upon riches on the back of camels and donkeys so that they could curry the favor of the Egyptians. And so they were going to extreme lengths and spending so much so that Egypt could protect them. And these are the people of Jehovah God. These are the people who have the one and only true God. The per, they, these are the people who has the God, the leader, the king who does not fight and conquer with swords, but with his own will and with his own word. And how foolish that was. And Isaiah told them that it was foolish. And he warned about how it would be disappointing to them and the strength of Pharaoh would be their shame. That's exactly what happened. Ultimately, Egypt was of no help to the southern nation of Judah any more than it was to the northern nation of Israel. And Second Kings 18 in verse 13, it says, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, that is king of Judah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And so he led Israel into captivity, turned his eyes to Judah, who is then making a confederacy, an agreement with the Egyptian nation and giving them much money to curry their favor and gain their protection And he had no problem laying siege to the fortified cities of Jerusalem. In some museums, I forget which one, uh, Hezekiah or Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, recorded his own history throughout his kingship on three clay prisms. And those are preserved today. And he uh, recounts his own historical um, view of what happened. And it's accurate to what the Bible says. He says on his clay prism that I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts, and to the countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them. I drove out of them 200,150 people, young and old, male and female. Hezekiah himself I made prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in the cage. And that's exactly what the text of Second Kings 18 indicates. He took fortified strong cities of Judah, but he did not take the capital. He did not take Jerusalem. He surrounded Jerusalem and he made embankments around it, and he shut up Hezekiah like a bird in the cage, is what he says. And having surrounded Jerusalem in Second Kings 18, Sennacherib sends his official, the Rabshakeh, and really taunts Hezekiah. And he himself points out the folly and trusting in Egypt. This is what he says in verse 19 of Second Kings 18. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, says now, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they are mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. He's not trustworthy. He is impotent against the great king of Assyria and his forces. And he's impotent simply because that shows the lack of trust in Jehovah that Judah has. And so even the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, understood the folly of trusting in Egypt. But he made a mistake. If we went on to read, he would also go on to mock the trust in Jehovah. You trust in Egypt, that's foolish, but... But it's even foolish to trust in Jehovah God is what he'd go on to say. And that was a mistake. And Hezekiah, while he was king in Israel at the time, or in Judah rather, 
he was also described as one who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was a good king in Judah. So it's quite evident that these people that went down to Zoan and Hanes in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 30 wasn't necessarily by the will of Hezekiah, but maybe it was just part of Judah that did this. And they conspired to gain forces with, join forces with Egypt so that they could stand against the Assyrians. But in chapter 19 of 2 Kings, Hezekiah, who was a godly man, at the threat of the Assyrian king Sennacherib and all his great forces, turned to God in prayer. In James chapter 5, we read that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And we'd see that put on display here as Hezekiah turned to God in prayer. And we come to realize throughout the history of the Judah nation that it wasn't at this time that God was willing to lead them finally into captivity. It would come years later after some other kings who did not fear the Lord would lead the people deeper into apostasy and sinfulness. And eventually the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, would be used by God to lead Judah into captivity. And so the Israelites into Assyrian captivity or Israel and Judah into Babylonian captivity. But it wasn't God's time yet. And we see how he would deliver this nation from the Assyrian oppression. In Isaiah 31, again, he speaks about how they trusted in the strength of Pharaoh with horses and chariots and horsemen. In verse 3, it is pointed out the, the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall and he who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. In verse 8, it describes the fact that God is going to deliver them from the Assyrians because they're nothing against the great God of the Hebrews. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword not of mankind shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. They're going to fall, not by the sword of man, not by any hand of man, not by any doing or strength of man. And that is put on full display for us without a shadow of a doubt that nobody, no man gained deliverance for Judah from the Assyrians, but God did. And it's recorded in Isaiah 37 in the historical account in verse 36. It says, Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrash, his god, that his son Adrimelech and Sherezer struck him down with the sword, and they escaped in the land of Ararat, and Arahad and his son reigned in his place. And so we might, we might remember the Midianites and... Um, and Gideon and his 300 men that were reduced by God and how God made sure that they knew the victory belonged to the Lord, that it wasn't by their power. They started with thousands of men and God reduced them down to 300 so that they could overcome the Midianite army and judges. And that was seen as powerful from God, but there was still something that the men were involved with in regard to that, but not so with God's deliverance from the Assyrian army. In the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord killed 185,000. And they woke up and saw dead bodies everywhere. And so it's quite obvious that it wasn't Egypt that was going to help them. 
It wasn't any other nation that was going to help them. It wasn't horses and chariots and swords. It was the Lord. And it's as simple as that. If, if you trust in me, I'll protect you. They didn't trust in him. They lost 46 fortified cities. They lost countless people. If they had only trusted in the Lord in the beginning, the Lord would have delivered them just like he did here. And it showed to them and it gave them second chances to trust in God because he's the one that can deliver. You know, the Old Testament, as we know, was written for our learning. These are not just historical accounts, but they're recorded for our good. Romans 15 and verse 4, that through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, it says, All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. And I want to su- suggest to you that this account is recorded for us to learn from their mistakes, that we should not trust in help that is idle, but we should always trust in the Lord our God. You might have noticed in Isaiah 30 in verse 7 that the Lord gave a name or a description for the Egyptians. It says, The Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore I have called them Rahab him Shebeth. The American Standard Version translates that, Rahab that sitteth still. In the King James Version, their strength is to sit still. In the center column reference of my Bible, it notes that Rahab sits idle. Rahab, as we might be familiar with, is an epithet of Egypt. But the word in the Hebrew means pride, blusterer, one who is boastful and arrogant. And Shebeth is to rest. It's an interruption or a cessation. So it means that Egypt may talk big. They may act like they can help you. But in the end, they're going to sit idle. They're not going to be able to do anything for you. In his commentary on the Old Testament, Albert Barnes said that the noun Rahab indicates ferocity, haughtiness, boasting, insolence, and the name was doubtless given to Egypt on account of its insolence and pride. It is used here because Egypt would be full of self-confidence and would boast that she could aid the suppliant Jews and deliver them from the threatened invasion. The phrase rendered to sit still is a part of the name which the prophet gave to her. Though she boasted, yet she would sit still. She would be inefficient. She would do nothing. The whole name, therefore, may be rendered, I call her the blusterer that sitteth still. That is, they are courageous in talking, cowards in acting. Where was Egypt when Assyria had finally turned their forces to Judah? Where was Egypt when Judah was attacked and 46 of her cities were taken? Where was Egypt or where would be Egypt when Sennacherib finally pushed the final blow on Jerusalem to take it? Well, it was God, not any nation or people that delivered Judah from destruction at the hands of the Assyrian nation. And we need to take an object lesson from that, that there is nothing we should put our trust in for confidence or for security or for happiness or eternal hope except for the Lord. And it's when trouble befalls us that the Lord provides an opportunity to show that faith in Him, to show our trust in Him. We need to make sure that we maintain our trust in God during those troublesome times. We can't trust in idle help like Israel who trusted in Egypt and Judah who trusted in Egypt when the Assyrians closed in on them. There are two things that I want to offer you as applications this evening things that I think we need to be careful about putting our trust in, especially in times of trouble and struggle, instead of putting our trust in God, because it's always idle. It'll never pan out. It'll never be 
the solid foundation we want it to be. It'll never be what we trust it to be. It'll always fail us. But God is there wanting us to put our trust in him. And it's especially during this season of the election, we need to remember not to put our trust in politics and government, not to put our trust in who we voted for. Because even if who we voted for was elected, or maybe who we voted for wasn't elected, regardless of what it is, politics is not the name of the game for the Christian. It's faith in God. And there's too many people in the world who have shown that they put all their trust, all all of their happiness, all of their feelings of, of security and surety, they put it in figures in Washington. And we know how foolish that is, but I want to suggest to you that even sometimes as Christians, we can fall into that same trap and we can be consumed with politics and it can take a place that it was never meant to take. It can take the place of our faith if we're not careful and it will fail us. There is no hope in political figures or in political discussions in government period. We need to put our trust in God. We live in a time where we have the news on 24 hours a day. Whatever it may be that is the news of that day, you had better believe it will be covered. And the next day, something else will be covered. It's on all the time. And if we're not careful, we're going to be consumed by it. I think that as a general rule, we probably watch too much of the news because that's where a lot of our worry comes from. And I've seen it in in places where Christians have have looked at the news and been so consumed with politics and it's all brought out in social media. That's especially something that has brought it out in our modern era. And people show themselves to be way too interested and consumed with politics to the extent that politics seems to become their religion and their religion becomes their pastime. And you see it especially in election cycles because people put so much stock in who they're voting for. And it's good to take pride in and nation and exercising our freedoms and such and our privileges as citizens of America. But sometimes Christians put too much stock in that. And so when their candidate or their party loses, there's a sense of worry and discontentment. But where's the trust in God? You know, some act as if and they do hold strong opinions that their candidate or their party is the key ingredient to a strong and trustworthy and stable life. And so if, if my candidate loses, if my party loses, if my political leanings aren't upheld, then, then I'm not going to have any kind of confidence. I'm not going to be comfortable. I'm not going to be happy. My life, it, it seems like it's going to fall apart. And that's not healthy. Christians are not supposed to trust in politics and government. You know, some even go as far to act as if God is affiliated with a political party. And usually it's their party that they're thinking of. God is the God of the party of the you fill in the blank. And they equate trust in God then with the trust in their political candidates and their political party. I even saw before in all of this recounting and voting and all of that kind of stuff that's going on, someone who was one who voted for Trump was saying, you know, I, I've come to realize that he, he didn't, he didn't win. And this isn't a political discussion. I don't care to talk about that, whatever your opinion may be. But there was someone who answered him and said, don't trust in the media, trust in God. And without even knowing it, what they did is they placed trust in God on the same plane as trust that the Republican Party won the ticket. 
And that's ridiculous. That's not what a Christian should be. And you can throw in any kind of party into that, any kind of candidate into that. It's not right to act as if God is affiliated even with this country. You know, this is not God's country. And a lot of times in our patriotism, we may try to fall into that. But this is not God's country. God has no country. The only country God ever had was Israel, and we saw how it turned out for them. God is not affiliated with any country. And there are God's people in many countries. And so some fall to even this further trap, this deeper state of this putting trust into government and political figures and act as if the cause of Christ is dependent upon the political leanings of this country. If so-and-so is elected president, if we lose this many seats in the Senate and the House, whatever goes the opposite way that we think, then Christianity is going to be threatened as we know it. There's going to be so much turmoil and so much struggle. The cause of Christ depends upon this. That's not the case. And it shows putting trust in someone and something other than God. God doesn't depend on any country, and neither should we. Our trust needs to be put in God. These are foolish thoughts, politics and love of country and putting our trust all in that to the neglect of our trust in God. We do need to understand that the authorities are placed there by God. In Romans 13 and verse 1, Paul said, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. God has placed authorities into position for our benefit, and we are to submit to those authorities. And it may be that they venture away from what God's will is, but still they're the authorities, and we're to be subject to them as long as we can be not in contradiction to the law of God. And for that reason, we're to pray for them. First Timothy 2 and verse 1, Paul says, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. I want to tell you that that's the most important thing we can do for the sake of our country. If we have that interest, is pray for those people. Voting is something that's important. But sometimes you even see Christians that act as if voting is more important than praying. We need to pray for those leaders in authority. But this does not mean that they're to be trusted. And I'll qualify that. It's not, it's not wrong to trust in your nation's military. I have a lot of trust in the, the great power of America and, and all the history and all the success in protecting this great country. I, I trust in that. But at the same time, I don't trust in the government And so far as taking that trust away from God in Romans 13, again, in verse seven, it says, render, therefore, to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due customs to whom customs fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. First Peter two and verse 17 says to honor the king. But I want to tell you that honoring the authorities is not the same as having faith in the authorities. And too often it leads down that path where Christians are not anymore simply being good patriots or Christians are not anymore being subject to the authorities and honoring the authorities, but they're getting so deep into politics and those discussions and those cares and concerns, troubling themselves from all of that, giving them stress upon stress that is not needed and there's no reason for it to the degree that they're really just putting their faith in the authorities. I want to tell you that Romans 13 
and all its truth was written to a church that lived under the Roman Empire. Not a God-fearing nation, not a God-fearing society, certainly not God-fearing kings, but kings who thought they were gods. And everything we read in the New Testament is under that context of a godless society and Christians who were thriving in a godless society. They didn't have the rights that we had. They didn't have the luxuries we have. They didn't have the privileges that we had. But that didn't stop their faith because their faith was never in any government. Their faith was in God. We need to learn from David, who in Psalm 11 was told to flee as a bird to your mountain and likely a time when it was either um, the first king of Israel who had preceded him was was following after him and seeking to kill him, Saul, or maybe it was when his son, Absalom, usurped the throne. And, and the people asked the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But David noted that the Lord is in his holy temple. I don't trust in the foundations of our society. I don't trust in who's king. I've always trusted in God, and that's who I trust in now. I think we often need to revisit the point that we have Daniel make to Belshazzar when he speaks about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 5. And he talks about how Nebuchadnezzar was prideful and arrogant, so God humbled him, and he humbled him to make this point. Until he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. We need to remember that. God is in control. But I think sometimes we only think of that in one way, from one angle. God is in control, and that means that God is going to, through his providence, preserve our nation for good. He's going to make sure everything is as conservative as we always have had it. He's, He's going to make sure it doesn't go too far this way or too far that way. God's going to preserve our nation. And, and that comes from this idea that this is God's nation. And that's just not the case. God is in control, but we need to be at peace with the idea that maybe God being in control means the end of our nation as we know it. And religious freedom as we know it, that all the privileges and luxuries that we enjoy and the freedoms that we get to exercise day in and day out without a thought that we take for granted, maybe it's God's will and he's in control And things are going to change drastically for us. We need to be at peace with that. And we need to have our lives reflect that. In Acts 8 and verse 4, it says that those Christians who were persecuted went about everywhere preaching the word. They went about living their lives as Christians. The Apostle Paul explained in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 9 that the word of God is not chained. And so it doesn't matter if America is not America anymore. It doesn't matter if America doesn't stand for the same constitutional principles that we hold dear to our hearts. If they go completely off the wayside... God's still in control, and He's still the one that we need to trust. You know, perhaps we get so caught up in the interest of our privileges, and it's right to pray about those things. I think that's what 1 Timothy 2 is talking about, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. We need to pray for those religious freedoms to continue, but we need to be at peace that the answer to the prayer may be no, no. And we need to realize that maybe it's for our good. Sometimes we tend to think that what's best for us spiritually in this nation as a people of God is the religious freedoms we enjoy. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe what we need is a wake-up call. Remember the words in 2 Corinthians 12 when the Apostle Paul was speaking of his thorn in the flesh and how it tormented him. And three times he pled that it might be taken away from him. And Christ told him in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I know he's not talking about politics there, but it, the general point goes to the same, the same place that maybe things won't be as good for us. But our trust in God is not dependent upon our outward circumstances. Our trust in God can be there no matter what. Such circumstances are prone to change for the better or for the worse. And that's why our trust needs to be in God. And we need to trust in Him to the degree that if things change to such a drastic manner that it's no longer easy for us to serve God because we're not in a free country. Things aren't going the way they've always gone. And the foundations as we know them have been destroyed. Maybe that's good for us to a certain extent. All things work together for good to those who love God. And, and in that context of Romans 8, it's suffering that is beneficial because it produces perseverance and character and hope, as Romans 5 says. When we are weak, then we are strong in Christ. Idle help that we need to avoid trusting in is politics. And then one more thing. I think some fall into the trap of trusting in what we might describe as human theology. Theology is simply a word which means the study of the nature of God in religious belief. It's not a word that I like to use. It's not a biblical word. And perhaps there's such a thing as sound theology. If it's the study of God, there's such a thing as, as a sound study of the nature of God and an understanding of Him. But the Bible never uses theology. It uses the word revelation. Revelation of who God is. He, he reveals His mind to us through His Spirit and the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 3, 3, that by revelation he made known to him the mystery as he is briefly written by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And so, well, that's a study of God. It doesn't speak of theology. It speaks of revelation. God gets to tell us who he is. God gets to tell us his nature. God gets to tell us how he makes decisions and what his reasons for those decisions are. God gets to tell us who God is. I think that theology really stands for more of a term referring to the study of common perspectives of God. And so human theology is maybe a better way of describing it. And so when people talk about theology, oftentimes their theology is not scriptural. It's, it's a study of God, but it's not a study of God in the context of his revelation. It's a study of God in the context of religious history. So this is what this religious leader said about God. This was what he said in his commentary. This was his logical focus. And this was his paradigm of thought looking into the scriptures. And when that happens, if it's not right, if it's erring, if it's not scriptural, then it completely changes every other thing that we'll see in the Bible. And Christians sometimes fall into that trap. This guy said something about God and it sounds good. And so I'm going to follow that. And then the snowball gets rolling down the hill and it picks up and it picks up. And before you know it, they're apostatized. They've, they've gone to a place that is nowhere close to scriptural. And so even if something sounds good, we need to beware lest we trust in something that is going to fail us. You know, Calvinism as an example is probably the greatest theological construct even to this day that people are swayed by. That's basic denominationalism these undertones of Calvinism. And it should just be called unsound theology because it's based on this premise that the sovereignty of God means that everything is chosen by Him. So even free will doesn't exist. Everything we choose to do, we don't really choose to do. God has predestined it. And, and with that fundamental error, logically comes all the tenets of Calvinism and it comes all of these errors about Christ and his sacrifice and about sin and the nature of man. 
And if we start looking at a place that is influenced by that fundamental error, then we may be influenced by it as well if we're not careful. We need to make sure that we're not trusting in what men think about God and what they say about God. And instead, look to the Scriptures ourselves and make sure we're actually trusting in God and not some man's imagination of God. You know, Psalm 50 tells us in verse 21, These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes, he tells to Israel. And that's usually what theology is. It's it's what man thinks of God, but they usually think of God through their lens of their own lives and their own thoughts and their own logic. But God's not like us, and we shouldn't think like Him. So we should be warned about using various materials in our studies. Maybe it's a commentary that's written from a denominational perspective, which is usually with the undertone of Calvinistic theology and error. We need to make sure that we're wary about what commentaries we use and how we use them, what kind of topical spiritual books we're reading, and what we're doing with our Bibles. There are study Bibles that have commentary that we need to understand is likely written from a perspective of a Calvinistic view. And so a lot of things are going to be subtle, but nevertheless, they're error. And an unlearned Christian and one who maybe doesn't have their guard up can be swayed by these materials. These arguments and teachings, although they may promise security and they may promise comfort and they may sound good, are actually error and they are idle help. They won't help at all. They're like Egypt when Judah trusted in them. I'll give you an example of this with some thoughts and mindsets that I've heard even some Christians have. Someone might say that a man can be saved without obedience to the gospel through baptism. And and usually with those thoughts from Christians, hypotheticals arise. So here's this man, he's taught the gospel. He's convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he has to be baptized to be saved. And so he gets in his car, he's driving to the baptistry, and he gets T-boned and he dies instantly. And their argument is God is too loving, God's grace is too great, to send that person who was intending to obey the gospel to hell. But it comes from this false view of God, this human theology. See, I think God is too loving. God is too gracious to send him to hell. But what does God say about himself? In Acts 20 and verse 32, the apostle Paul mentions the word of his grace. In Titus 2 and verses 11 and 12, it speaks about the grace of God that teaches us. And so the grace of God cannot be separated from the word of God. It is Romans 1 and verse 16, after all, that says the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And so it's impossible to be saved without obeying the gospel. But someone will bring up hypotheticals and they're changing their perspective of God and what they're doing is trusting in human theology. Another thing they'll say is that his love is too great to send that person to hell. You know, John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son shows that God's love is extended universally. But the Bible is very clear that that love, although it's extended and offered universally, is conditional as much as His grace. In Jude 20, Jude says, You, beloved, build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and keep yourselves in the love of God, which means it's our responsibility to be within the realm of His love. And if we don't do what is his will, then we will be outside of his love. And one of those is obeying the gospel. And so it's trusting in human theology theology to think that, well, I just don't think that, that God would send a person to hell who intends to obey the gospel and dies. 
Really, what we need to do is do away with hypotheticals altogether in many cases because they lead down those paths. Here's one other example. A Christian may say that a Christian will not lose his soul because of one sin. And another hypothetical may come up. Here's this individual who's wanting to do good. He's, he's wanting to do right and he's struggling with this sin and he's, he sins and he repents. He sins and he repents. But one time he sins and then he gets hit by a car. He, he dies instantly and he didn't have time to pray to God for forgiveness. He didn't have time to correct that. He didn't have time to, to grow out of that. There's no way God would abandon his child based on one mistake. But see, again, that's human theology. I don't think God would do this, but what does the Bible say about God? Firstly, Isaiah 59 and verses 1 and 2 says that God doesn't abandon us. We abandon Him. His hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. It's not God's fault. It would be the fault of that person. But you know, if we're going to talk about the love of God and the grace of God and the long-suffering of God and the mercy of God, we also have to talk about God's holiness. He can't have fellowship with any sin. Not one sin can enter the gates of heaven. And we also have to talk about His being just in His justification of us. In Romans 3 and verse 26 it speaks about the propitiation by Jesus' blood through faith, and it gives this reason for Christ's blood and therefore the propitiation by it. So that God could demonstrate at the present time, Romans 3.26, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now the Christian who in his trust of human theology will suggest that one sin will not keep a person out of heaven because God would never abandon His child like that needs to realize what God says about himself. The only way he can justify us, man, is by maintaining him being just. And that's only through the blood of Jesus. Now, 1 John chapter 1 speaks about when a Christian might sin and that he's faithful and just, again, faithful and just to forgive us of those sins if we confess them to him. And he adds in chapter 2 of 1 John that he wrote these things that we may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It's, it's by his blood. Romans 3 used the same word, propitiation. And so the point I'm trying to make is that if person who has obeyed the gospel and become a Christian sins again, and they don't repent of that sin and confess it to God and ask for forgiveness, then they don't contact the necessary blood of Jesus for that forgiveness. Blood of Jesus is always necessary for our forgiveness. We contact it in baptism, and then every time we pray to God, confessing that sin and asking for forgiveness, we contact it again. It's still the propitiation for our sins. And so if you've got a Christian who has sinned, and they didn't confess that to God and repent of that and pray for forgiveness, and someone is suggesting by their human theology that God's going to allow that person by His grace and love into heaven, what they're saying is that God is going to justify that person separate and apart from the blood of Jesus. But then he's no longer just if he's doing that. He is only just and the justifier of the one who has faith in the blood of Jesus. And so what we need to do is instead of putting our trust in human theology, put our trust in God's word. Romans ten seventeen says, after all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How do we come to a belief and a trust in God in his ways? We read his word, not the words of man. We don't trust in what any man thinks about God. We trust in what God says about God. Isaiah 55 and verse 8 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. These doctrines start sounding good to us. 
and they boast of security and comfort and peace. But they're like Egypt, Rahab, him, Shebeth. They sit still. In the end, we're not going to be judged by human theology. Jesus says, my word will judge you in the end, John 12, 48. There are obviously many other things that we could add to this general concept of trusting in idle help. We need to make sure we're not trusting in material possessions. We need to make sure we're not trusting in just physical relationships or people in general. We need to make sure we're not trusting in any other thing under the sun except for God as He's revealed in His Word. Because any other trust is vain and it is to no avail. If you're this evening and I've not obeyed the gospel, we want you to trust in God for that salvation. And you do that by doing what God's Word says. He tells us that he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. If you haven't done that, the only way you can be assured of salvation is to follow those commands. If you have obeyed the gospel and there's some other spiritual need, though, that we can assist you with, we extend the invitation call to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.